0: Good morning, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles out and follow along with us this morning as we spend some time in God's Word looking at a problem, a problem that is very real to this world. It is an economic, or it is a global, I should say, a global problem. It is a problem that has affected America immensely. and It is a problem that I don't think is going to be uh, foreign to you. But maybe you've just looked at the world around us and thought, I just don't know what to call it. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to explain this. I don't know why this problem exists. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Before we get into that, I want to echo what has already been said to our visitors. We are so very thankful for you all being here with us, for choosing to come and and spend this time worshiping our great God together with us, praising Him, lifting Him up, and spending some time in His Word being enriched and edified by the the way that His will has been revealed to us. Getting to this problem now, this, this problem that I want to talk about, the problem that I'm talking, the term I'm going to use to describe this issue is expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. Now possibly when I say that, you think to yourself, as I thought to myself when I first heard it, what on earth is that? What exactly does expressive individualism mean? Well, let me give you a quote by a man, Yuval Levin. He is a political commentator. You might have heard that name. He says this, that term suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. Now listen here. He says, "...it is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are, and also to live in a society by fully asserting who you are." He continues, I don't have this on the board, "...the capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty." And with the meaning of some of our basic rights. And it is given pride of place in our self-understanding. So what is Mr. Levin talking about when he says this? He is talking about the right to be who you want to be. The right that we feel we have as Americans that I can be me. I can do what I want to do. And it's defined maybe better by the slogans that we have plastered on this throughout the, 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 the years. Phrases such as, well, you know what? You just do you. You do you, I'll do me, and don't anyone judge between us. Be who you want to be, even follow your heart. And these sound innocent when we hear these phrases. There can't be anything wrong with that, can there? But they've led us to a world that is far separated from God. They've led us into becoming lost in our sensualities and quickly becoming a people who are losing our very own identity. I want to read from another quote, Uh, uh, an article written for the the magazine, American Magazine, was looking at a book that was written by a group of men, specifically one named Robert Bella. The book is called Habits of the Heart, and Robert is a sociologist that worked on this this book, and he drew a very startling conclusion when he was speaking about this problem of expressive individualism, and specifically just individualism in itself. He noted there are two different types of individualists um, that that make up or describe the American society. The first one that he points to is the utilitarian individualist. And as an example of this, he looks and points to Benjamin Franklin. This type of man believes that that man is self-made. Man is self-maximizing. In other words, the American mentality that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you make something of yourself. But in response to that view, he says, Let me give you another famous American, and he quotes Walt Whitman, looking to this poet's work, Leaves of Grass, which begins with the phrase, I celebrate myself. I celebrate myself. This, Mr. Bella says, is a great example of expressive individualism. This perfectly exemplifies the expressive individualist who doesn't see life as an opportunity to maximize oneself for material gain. However, and to quote Robert, to luxuriate, luxuriate in sensual and intellectual experiences, to take pleasure in one's bodily life and sexuality and express oneself freely, without any concern for social conventions. These are opposing views that are reacting to one another. He points to utilitarianist uh, individuals and and doesn't say this is the model that we should model ourselves after. He says... This individualism could pose a problem, and, and he is very much talking about a societal, political problem. This sort of mentality could pose a problem for our country, and equally posing a problem for our country is the reaction to it. Expressive individualism. One says man is what he makes himself out to be. The other one is I am who I am, and you need to accept me for who I am. So to clarify these two these two statements, he he digs a little deeper. And as he does, he comes to the realization that there's actually deeper roots than just men like Benjamin Franklin and Walt Whitman to these problems. In fact, as Bella started to dig a little bit further, he starts to find out that the roots of individualism began in the church. Now, I'm going to use that term loosely here, but as he describes it, this is a religious problem. This is a problem that is religious in its very nature and began, as he describes, in the church. He claimed in his book that this notion first flowed out of the idea of freedom of conscience. Freedom of conscience. This this, uh, was, was, in his opinion, first championed by Protestant groups. And he quotes specifically the Quakers and the Baptists. Now, as as he talks about these two groups, we need to keep in mind what he's doing. And he's he's comparing and contrasting two different viewpoints. He brings up the Quakers and the Baptists uh, at a specific point in in American history because you have a very utilitarian, a very traditional base. This is what we do. This is why we do it. You You must not rail against that with also a mentality that says, well, why can't we do this? Isn't this a good idea? Well, let's do that. I should be able to express my love for God in a different way. And that's the reason he brings up these two groups. He says, the key move, the key move was to extend the sacredness of conscience from religious beliefs to any seriously held conviction, whatever. So he points to the to the, the religious belief that says, look. Yes, you have always said that we have always believed, we have always told that we need to worship God this way, but, but I'm saying that I should be able to worship God how I feel best worships Him. I should be able to put all of, of, of my desires and beliefs into what this worship should be and make it that. He says that's where this started. And do we see where it led? because it was just a hop, skip, and a jump before it went out of the religious realm into the world itself. It leached over. In fact, he continues on. Uh, He says, Here in the city of San Francisco, where you can probably do almost anything within reason and still not raise an eyebrow, it is ultimately thanks to the Baptists. Uh, Now, I I don't know what what denomination that Mr. Bella comes from. I don't know his background. I don't know his beliefs. I don't know anything other than the fact that he wrote this book and, and he attributed to this magazine. He's been dead for several years now. He died back in 2013. But what he's pointing to is from an outside view, I'm starting to see that what began in the church with, let's have freedom to choose how we want to worship God, leached out into the culture with, let's have the freedom to choose what we want to be. That's the statement that he's making. That's, that's his argument that he's bringing forward. What he noticed began in a religious world with the mentality, if you think it's a good idea, you can do it. Or as we, we might say today, if, if it's, even if it doesn't have authority in Scripture, if you think it's going to be better, it's okay. What began there came into the mentality, if I can serve God however I choose, then why can't I as a male... Identify as a female. That's where he's bringing this conclusion to. And I want to say that this is not solely to blame on loose religious activity. That's not the sole blame for this. Because there's also a sense of this problem that is found in relativism. Relativism is that that thought that says knowledge and truth and morality. These things only exist in relation to the culture they are in, the society they are in, or the historical context that they are in, they are not absolute. So people that believe this, if you, if you think that sounds absolutely crazy, let me tell you, this is extremely popular. This is a very heavily held belief. What makes something right or wrong is not based on any absolute truth. It's based upon what the society thinks. And oftentimes, people to, to argue this will say, well, in... In a society over in, in some far indigenous country, it is completely acceptable for people to walk around barely clothed. But that's not okay here. And so, see, society proves that it's right here or right there, but wrong here. I'm sorry, that's that's a fallacy. That is not what makes something right or wrong. But this belief that culture can dictate, society can dictate what is right and wrong, what is truth, what is morality. Is the idea of relativism. And therefore, what the world has done today is said, I have a right to be what I wanna be. I have a right to do what I wanna do. And you can't tell me I'm wrong based on this. I'm gonna take your legs out from underneath you if I can. The reason being is because that was perfectly acceptable, perfectly acceptable to a group of ignorant fishermen that it was originally given to. But it is not sufficient for the higher educated society that we now live in. Welcome to America. This is where we have come to. Relativism in American societies has led to traditional understandings of marriage, Traditional understandings of sexual ethics undergoing radical reevaluation. Practices that were formerly considered as taboo. Things that we won't even talk about have become staples, have become guaranteed fodder for light entertainment. They're depicted in our media for the sake of a joke. We can know for certain that if we want to make money on this, we just throw in some, some things about these issues that, that we know people are going to eat up. And here's the problem. No consideration is given. No care is given as to how this affects community. No care is given as to how this affects natural law. No care is given to how this affects biological inheritance, what you were born as, male or female. And certainly no care is given to how this affects sacred writing. Because again, we just have to say that doesn't relate to us. That's not relative to us. And here's the law that we now live under. These things, natural uh, natural law, biological inheritance, sacred writings, these things must never be allowed to interfere with this one new cultural law, and that is individuals have to be allowed to define and express themselves however they desire. As long as everyone is consenting. Because there's not a person out there that will take this stain and say, I have a right to express myself and you have a right to express yourself until we cross the line of rape. Now we've went too far. And so consent has to be there even in this, even in this view that says, I can, def- I can express myself however I want to and you can express yourself as long- however you want to as long as it doesn't violate me personally. But I'm arguing that that's going to soon be a way of the past. Because we've already kicked the footstool out from underneath that argument with abortion. With the gross murder of children in our society because they can't give their consent. And so we'll choose for them whether or not they're even a living being or not. You see where all this is leading, it leads to a very dark dark society that that looks to its own desires and it looks to to what it wants and it says, I'm going to be the authority and I'm going to be the one that gets to decide and I, I, I. It's all about me. And we're bombarded with that. Our world is filled with that notion. Be who you want to be. Do you. Find yourself. Free the real you. Or as the popular Diet Coke slogan The reason for all this, why? Because I can. Because it's my right. I'm an individual and I am proud of it. And I'm going to be who I want to be. This is expressive individualism. What are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to face this fierce new enemy that has arisen To stand against God and to stand against His people. What are we supposed to do? Well, number one, I want to argue in in helping us understand what to do with this and, and whether or not it can be changed. I want to first argue that this is not a new problem. We need to be very aware of that. This is not something that has taken God by surprise and I don't know if I've equipped my people for this. This is not a new problem. And to prove that, We'll go to Scripture. Bell attracted the origins of this in an American society back to these early radical religions as he describes them. But I believe we can look back through history even further and find that this tool is a tool that Satan has used uh, from very early on. In fact, maybe from the first tools that he used. In Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to put these on the board. Uh, i I'm not sure that everybody will be able to read them, though. they're quite small. And so if you want to follow along in your own Bibles, Genesis chapter 3 verses one through five. Genesis three verses one through five describes what we often call the fall of man. Listen to what it says there. Now the serpent was made craftier, or was more crafty, excuse me. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God actually say, "You shall not eat any of the trees in the garden?" And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now again, as I said, this is the account of the fall of man, and I want to notice a few things about it, but but first we have to understand some things that were said just prior to it. In chapter 1, when God is making man, in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He says, Let us make man in our image. That is, in the likeness of God, man has been made. And in verse 31, He continues, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So in those two verses, we find that we have been made, we are a creation, made in the image or the likeness or the representation of God. And at creation, God looked down upon us and said, they are very good. We might say then, our identity, mankind's identity, was as a creation that was good in the eyes of God. Or we might just say, we were a righteous creation. We were right with God in a right relationship with Him at that time. And so what does Satan do? What does Satan do with that information? Number one, he calls into question the consequences of their actions. If you'll note, he says you will not surely die. That's not going you don't, you don't to happen. There's not going to be ramifications for this like you think. You will not die if you eat of that fruit that God has commanded you not to eat of. That God has said you will die if you eat it. But he also does something else. He doesn't just say the, 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 the consequences aren't as bad as you think. He goes to a step further. And he says, if you eat that fruit, you can change your identity. You will be able to tell what's good and evil. You will be like God. You see, we need to remember They are made in the image of God, but all they know is that which is good. That's all that God has given them. Everything that God has made is good. And God is asking them, trust Me. Trust Me in this. Let Me define what is good and evil. I will give you knowledge of good and you won't have knowledge of evil. And and their choice that is before them now, is you can just accept that identity and you can accept that you're in the image of God and that God is wise and He he has created all of these things. And we're actually going to talk more about that this afternoon with with what we learn from His creation about His his great attributes that that makes us without excuse for not knowing Him. They said you can take what what, what, what you have here and you can trust that and you can allow that to be your identity. Or Satan said, or you can choose to become just like him. You can change who you are. You can be who you were really meant to be. And their choice is, we want to make that choice for ourselves. Their choice is, we want the ability to choose for ourselves if something is right or if something is wrong. Now you go back to our definition of relativism, that's relativism. That's a society, now granted a society of two people at this point, but that's a society saying, we'll dictate. What's right or wrong? Not you, not God, not not His word. We will dictate what is right and wrong. What is knowledge? What is morality? What is truth? Let me ask you, where does all this lead? What's the result of this mentality found in them? Very early on, we see it's death, we see it's pain, we see toil. We see murder and slavery and sexual immorality. The creation of a people whose hearts are bent on evil continuously. And that's in the first six chapters of the Bible. Six chapters in and we see that we have just ruined God's creation that from the beginning He looked at and said it was very good. Why? Because we decided we'll be the ones that choose what's right or wrong. We'll be the ones to make that definition the account of adam and eve being tempted and given into temptation teaches us that at the very core of what we see today as expressive individualism people defining for themselves who they will be and 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 what they will do has always been found when mankind seeks to define for itself what is morally right and wrong now fast forward a couple years because we say okay well that it would maybe it was there in creation but jesus came Jesus came to give life to a new kingdom. Jesus came to give life even though Adam had brought death into the world. He came to bring life. And certainly in the kingdom of Christ, this cannot be a problem. How can this guy point to religious areas saying that's what caused it in America when Jesus came to create a kingdom that that should not allow this to happen? What about during the church age? Can this still be a problem? Well, When we fast forward to after the resurrection of Christ and into the early church, I want us to see that there are those there that are seeking to follow God, but they're being, and they're leading the society around them further and further away from God because of this same exact problem. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Corinth is a church that is rich with with many spiritual blessings and rich with great, divisive, arrogant attitudes as well. Read with me these verses here. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16-20. through 20. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And you are the temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Now, I, I don't want to take these passages and just, just rip them out of context for our point here. That would, that would be a mistake. That would be wrong. And we have to understand what he's, what he's writing about here is he's writing to a church that was dividing themselves. When he says that you are God's temple, he's talking about you are the church. You are the the, the the, the kingdom which God has created and which His image is supposed to be expressed through, you are the church. And you are dividing it with arguments over what preacher you're going to follow. Many of which, these preachers, they're talking about, are you going to be a Paul or Apostle, Apollos or Christus or, 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 or Cephas? Who are you going to follow? Many of them are teaching the same thing. And they're fighting over this. And Paul warns them, this is destroying the church in Corinth. Not only spiritually is this destroying the church, but what kind of work could they do in Corinth? Who wants to come be a part of this? Let me invite you into the unifying love of God, and when you come in to see that all it is is a big mess of us fighting with one another over whether or not we're going to follow these two different preachers. He says, you are destroying this. And many today are still destroying the church with the same question. Which teacher am I going to follow? But it seems like in our society that, that the, the phrase has shifted a little bit to people who are not whether or not they're teaching the truth or not, but I don't like the way that this one teaches it versus the way that this one teaches it. Now it's more like, who am I going to follow? Am I going to follow God or am I going to follow society? Am I going to follow the, the beliefs and the, the, the expectations of the world around us? But I want us to know this letter goes on. It doesn't stop here in chapter 3. It goes on to show us the problem was alive and well then. And it illustrates that point as they continue to talk about individualism in the book of, Corinth, in the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, the next passages that I want to just bring up, we're not going to turn to these we're, for the sake of time, but the next passage I want to bring up are passages that have been used heavily today to provoke, promote individualism and oftentimes are taken out of context to do so. In 1 Corinthians 8-10, through the context here in 1 Corinthians 8-10 through is you have these guys that have written to Paul and they're saying, Paul, look, we have some brothers that think that it's wrong to eat meat offered to idols. Now listen, we used to do this. We used to be in the world. We know what those idols are. They're just a bunch of rocks. So Paul, would you please tell our brothers that our knowledge is better than theirs and they need to just get over this issue that they're having that's that's the context of what's happening in chapters 8 through 10 and paul's going to tell them about sacrifice and yes there there is nothing to these but you need to take into consideration the individual's conscience at this time as well you don't want to cause them to sin but then in verse in chapter 12 chapter 12 he again he goes on a little beyond that and he begins to talk about why the individual needs to be considered. And this is where I think we have had a breakdown in our society. Why is it that the individual is important? Because the individual is important to God. The individual is important to God. But why has there been a breakdown? Chapter 12 goes on to talk about the spiritual gifts that they had. Spiritual gifts that were soon going to be coming to an end. But in verse 11, chapter 12, verse 11, he says, these gifts were given not to the church, they were given to individuals. He said, no, no, "Not just everybody in the church has these gifts. Individuals have these gifts." And so, what was the focus? Uh, uh, why was this focus on individuals so important? Why does he have to say you need to get uh, you need to step back from this mentality? He says, oh, "Everything's all right because I know the truth about idols, and that, that guy's conscience doesn't matter." Why is it important that he brings up that individuals receive these gifts? Because individuals are working together for the betterment of the whole body. There is no concept, no concept, no room in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, of the body being just one member. Over and over again, he makes that point. You guys that think that the body is just a big old eyeball, where would the hearing be? You, you, you people that think the body is just a great big old foot, how's that going to work? He says, look, there's no sense on earth where the body is made up of just one individual. That the body is made up of just this one type of person and everything has just got to be that person's way. He says the body is working together to build up the whole under the head, which is Christ. In Ephesians, in fact, in in verse 24 of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 24, this concept is is brought even further when he says the body is working together to, to build up the whole to present the body as God composed it. That's another thing that's missing in our society today is we want to compose the body the way we want to. That's what they're wanting to do. They're wanting to compose the body the way they wanted to based off the spiritual gifts that they had. And he's saying, no, you let God compose the body. In Ephesians 4, he writes to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesians 4, verse 4, He tells them there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So we can't say, well, okay, we'll just be a part of this body over here and and you all be a part of that body over there. He says, no, you were brought into one body to be unified under one head. And what did he do for that one body? In verse 11, he says, I gave it the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, again, what is that emphasizing? That's emphasizing that he gave the body individuals. Okay, well, that, there we go. The individuals get to. They, they, I have a right as an individual to be, to be useful and for, for me to shine and for me to, to show forth my individualism. No, where does he continue with that? What's the purpose of these individuals? Verse 12 To equip the saints, to equip the saved of Christ, to equip the body for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. He says, look, I gave you individuals. Those individuals are working together again to build up the whole body. Why? How long? Verse 13, until everyone's in unity. Until we're all unified in the faith. Until we all attain of the unity of the faith. And in verse 16, he continues on, from the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. What is his point in all this? He's saying there is one body that was, that was composed by God to be conformed, Romans 8, 29, to the image of His Son, to the image of Christ. And God provided for that body the individuals that were needed to help that body grow into exactly what God intended for it to be, not what man intended for it to be. That tells me that the church then is all about glorifying God. This is the purpose of the church, expressing His glory to a world so that they might be saved by Him. And sometimes this gets lost in a relative world that says, wait a minute, what about me? This has to I have to be allowed to stand out. I have to be allowed to be expressed. I have that right. And so it's no surprise at all then. It's no surprise at all that we have issues with God's law concerning women. We have issues with God's law concerning women who have different roles than men in the church and different roles than men in the family. That's a problem because that doesn't let me express myself the way that I have a right to express myself. I can't express my thoughts, my ideas. I can't express my beliefs unless I'm allowed to preach. And so I'm a woman and I deserve the right to preach. It's no surprise to me that's where we are today. I heard recently that there was a young woman who was in fear of attending a congregation that didn't allow, didn't just allow women to lead singing, didn't allow women to do solos because her right to express her love for God was being infringed upon. I have a right to express my love to God through song and that is being infringed upon if you're not going to let me sing a solo in front of everyone. That's where this has led us. It's no surprise to me we have an issue with God's law concerning marriage. A law that begins saying only certain people have a right to be joined together in marriage. Man and woman who have never been married before. Man and woman who are not bound to anybody else. Or man and woman who maybe have been married before, but have divorced that spouse for the cause of fornication. God is very specific here. There are only certain people that I give the right to be married and people say, well, wait a minute, that infringes upon my right to be happy. That infringes upon my right to express myself. And it continues. That was an issue that was, that was heavily fought in the 70s. And it lost. And the society said, no, anybody can get married and you can get divorced for whatever reason you want to. No fault at all. And the society changed its views. And where has it led us Today. It's led us to the complete abandonment of God's laws, restricting marriage between man and woman. Now, I can, if I'm a man, I can marry a man. If I'm a woman, I can marry a woman. And if I don't like even that, I can redefine myself. I'm a man born that way, but I decide I want to be expressed as a female and vice versa. All of these are no surprise. You say, why? Why is that not a surprise? I say it's because, just like the Corinthians, sometimes we are guilty of becoming a culture And not a kingdom. Jesus didn't die to establish a culture. He died to set up a kingdom. We sang that song right before we got up here. He is my king. Do we understand what we're saying when we say that? This mentality crops up in the most seemingly harmless ways. Phrases such as, I am an American citizen. I am an American citizen. I am a Republican. I am a UK basketball fan, sometimes a UK football fan. I was one last night. I am an avid outdoorsman. These are not definitions of who I am, but they can become that. They can become my defining identity, but they mustn't. Why? because I have a greater identity. I am a Christian. I am a disciple of Christ. I am a follower of God and I belong to the Kingdom of His Son. That means something more than just I show up at church services at the prescribed time. That means He is my King. And I sacrifice any perceived right that I might have because I was living as an enemy of Him, deserving death, and was allowed to be transferred into that kingdom to to reign with Him. Now let me go ahead and say this. I do want to express myself. I do. I hope that you don't take away from this that what I'm preaching is God desires a class of robots to make up His kingdom. That is not the point at all. There are things, there are attributes, there are abilities and talents that I have that make me better at some things than you, and there are plenty of attributes and abilities that I have that make me much worse at things than you. God didn't raise up a body just made up of thumbs. He made the whole body, and He composes it the way He wants. And I am an individual in that body, but I must be an individual. We must be individuals that express ourselves through the biblically objective lens not how i feel like and not i'll just do what i want to do i will express myself through christ and let his image radiate out from me and so that brings us back to our question then is this fixable is there something we can do to fix where our society where the world is headed and to answer that question i would point us to luke chapter 15 Luke chapter 15. Now let's just read the first, uh, verses 11 through 16 first. This is the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus said, uh, and he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. What I want to do, what I want us to see, I should say, is in the prodigal son is the mentality, I will do what I want to do, and I will do it right now. And I want us to come to, to, to realize that we can come back from that mentality. We can come back from that sort of worldview that I deserve what I want. You see, his actions reveal his character. He treats his father as if he's dead. Dad, go ahead, and give me your inheritance. The inheritance that I would get when you died, I don't want to wait that long. You go ahead and give it to me, and then I'm leaving. More or less, you're dead to me, Dad. I want what, I'm, what belongs to me, I want what I deserve, and I'm out of here. He takes his inheritance. He wastes it in a self-indulgent life. In fact, a life that is so self-indulgent that it would seem that he's completely lost his mind. The people around him look at this Jew who's about to eat slop from the swine's trough. They would say, this guy has completely lost his mind. In fact, his life resembles the very animals he's about to eat with. That's the character that we're talking about the prodigal son. He is a character that is defined by his wants. He is a character that is an image of the conclusion of expressive individualism. Be what you want. Be your desire. That's where it leads. The prodigal son is, what this, is is what this mentality creates. So what happens? What happens to him? Let's keep reading. In verse 17, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And when he arose and came to his father... And they began to celebrate. First thing I want us to notice in this passage, is what happens? What happens is He comes to Himself. Did you notice that in verse 17? He comes to Himself. There must be a coming to oneself, a coming to one's right mind for repentance, for this realization to take place. There is something better. There is something better out there than me just giving myself over to my desires. I don't know how many times that we told our children growing up, something was hot, don't touch it. That's hot, don't touch it, you'll get burnt. Whether it be a stove, whether it be a, a, a pot, whether it be a, a fireplace, it's hot, don't touch it. And I just I hoped so bad, one day they would come to the realization that what I was saying for them was better than their desire to touch that hot thing. They, didn't, they couldn't see that at that point. They couldn't understand that. To them, I want to touch that. To me, I see you're going, to, you're going to take every bit of skin off of your hand if you touch that. Please don't do it. They have to come to the realization, you know what, Mom and Dad? Mom and Dad are saying something a whole lot better than just what my desires are saying to me. We have to come to that realization as a society. There is something better than just giving myself over to whatever it is that I want. And so he begins to reason when he comes to himself, not before, but after he comes to himself, he begins to be able to reason about these things. He says, in my father's house, there's servants, people who don't own their own will, people who don't have a right to say, I'll do what I want to do. And their lives are better than mine. And I've been given the right to do whatever I want. That's a better life. And I'm over here dying because of this. I'm going to go back to my father. And I want you to think of this because we're going to comment on the father in a moment. But I want you to think about his mentality here. He begins to rehearse what I'm going to say. I'm going to go to my father. And I picture this in my mind. He's walking. I've I've got to go back to to my father's house. I'm walking down the road. And I'm going to get there. And I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned. And I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. And, And please just make me your servant. Father, I've sinned. And I'm not worthy anymore. Please just make me your servant. Father, and here comes his father running down the road. Because what has his father been doing? Verse 20 says, that he saw him. His father's been looking. His father's been watching. And as he gets to his father, his father, he, he grabs him and he embraces him and kisses him and he says, Dad, Father, I have sinned against you and I'm not worthy to be a son. And the father interrupts him. Did you notice that as we read through there? He doesn't let him finish his, his, his spiel that he's got planned. He stops him and says, No, bring him a robe. Bring him a ring, a ring that signifies he's a part of this family. Bring him the the, clothe him in this family. Let's have a feast, let's celebrate because you were dead, but you are not my servant. You are my son who is alive. That is the forgiving love of the Father. Is this fixable where society is gone? Yes. It's fixable by repentance. It's fixable by coming to our, our senses and turning to the Father and saying, I have sinned and I'm not worthy to be a son. To hear God say, I will bring you into my kingdom, the kingdom of my son as adopted sons. And I will seal you as a part of this family. It is possible. Our society is perishing because we want to be whatever we want to be. Our churches are dividing and destroying because members focus on how do I express myself and my wants and my desires Rather than letting God's love shine out. And God's authority be the, gui- the, the guiding truth. Instead of being conformed to the image of a son, they want to be conformed to the image of their individuality. And there is a way back from that. And what the prodigal son teaches us is God is watching. And when he sees us coming, he is ready to receive with forgiveness and blessing but we must come to him we must have a, a change of heart a change of mind that prompts us to realize who god is and go to him head that way that's what the product was done is teaching us and so i believe hundred percent our country our society our world can turn from this but there's a few things i want to point out and the lesson will be yours i do not believe i do not believe that this happens by electing the right individual. Sometimes I hear Christians say that. It it, it concerns me. We have to elect the right individuals so they can pass the right laws and they can overturn the wrong laws that have been made. I'm not saying that I don't want that to happen. I'm saying that's not the answer to changing the society. That's relativism again. See, relativism has two, two sides, one of which we hate. When the society says it is okay for a man to say he's a woman, we don't like that. And we say, that's relativism. That's not okay. When society says God needs to be, to be held with honor and, and revered and, and He has authority, if everyone believes it just because society says it, it, it might lead to a more peaceful, prosperous life, but it doesn't lead to people who believe for the right reason. We have to be sure that we are aware where this actually begins. It doesn't begin at Capitol Hill. I want to suggest it begins in the church. Just like Mr. Bella was pointing out. What began in the church leached out into society. That's exactly the mentality that Christ died for. For the church to leach out into the world. And for the world to be seasoned with the salt of the believers of God. We need churches. We need churches that will strive to glorify and express God before themselves, before the individual. And I hope and I pray that at Lake Street, that will always be our goal. That we are going to put God first. That we are going to set His authority first. We are going to put His love first. Before we say, I want my way, I want things to happen the way that I want them. God will always come first. We will be individuals. And we will will build up and each one of us will do our part. But we're doing our part to glorify God and to share His image with the world. It also begins with families. It begins with families who will stand up and lead the example that Christ died so that we could lead. Husbands who will love their wives with the same sacrificial love that Christ had for the church and wives that will submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And you know what? Parents. Parents need to teach their children that their value is not tied up in their individuality. How many times that parents have raised their kids to say, you can be whatever you want to be. Whatever it is, you can be whatever you want to be. And we tell our kids all the time that, you know, you grow up, and you want to be an astronaut, you give it 100%. You try to be an astronaut. you be Whatever it is that you're trying to set your mind to be. But before we can say that, in fact, maybe in many ways we should just remove that from our vocabulary. We need to teach them that whatever it is that they grow up to be, That does not define their value. Instead of teaching them to be whatever they want to be, why don't we teach them that they are fearfully and wonderfully made? Why don't we teach our kids that the same God that sowed the stars into heaven planted the hairs on their head. And that same God that made you so wonderful that made you so individual, that made you who you are, He also gave His Son to die for you. Because He loves you. And He has a plan, He has a purpose for you, and He has a use for you. You see, the opposite of expressive individualism is not just everybody's a robot, that nobody has value. It's that God is good, and He is great, and He has made us in His image. And so let's spend our lives, let's spend our lives seeking to glorify Him, seeking to shine His life, His light through us. Can we help you with that today? Can we help you to glorify God in your life? It begins by learning who He is, it begins by learning what He has done for you, it begins by submitting yourself sacrificing my life, my desires, my wants, to my new King. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. That is our desire to do that. To help you to learn through His Holy Word who He is and how to follow after Him. And if there's something we can do today to help you in that, to come to Him in repentance and be saved by the blood of His sacrifice through baptism, or to to come back to Him and repent, from a life that possibly has been spent turning more to self and less to God. We want to do that. We want to help. Won't you please let it be known. Come forward right now as we stand and sing.